We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. What sort of family do you come from? What beliefs did you grow up with? What were the rules, both spoken and unspoken? How did your family handle conflict? What feelings were acceptable and what were unacceptable? What could be talked about? On the podcast today, we're going to look at family systems theory with Elaine Carney-Gibson, who's been practicing as a psychotherapist for 50 years and is the author of Your Family Revealed, a guide to decoding patterns, stories, and family belief systems in your family. She is the Director of Marriage and Family Therapy Training Institute of the Link Counseling Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, Elaine, there's a theory that people become therapists, and in particular, I should imagine family therapists, to make sense of their own families. What have you discovered about your family with 50 years of practice? Well, I think I knew I was doing something in the way of a family therapist when I was a young child. At that point in time, there wasn't something called family therapy or family systems theory. But I was aware that being in my family, I played a role and that other people played a role and that we had certain patterns of communication and relating. And that um, in my family particularly, it was kind of stories and myths and mottos that kind of guided us in terms of how we lived our lives. And I was very aware of that at a very young age. I hadn't planned to be a family therapist because it wasn't really an option when I was starting off in undergraduate school. By the time I got to graduate school, it was bursting on the scene. And it was like, okay, this really fits for me. I like this approach. I like the idea of not thinking of the individual in terms of that we have problems or pathologies. We do. But to look at that in terms of the system, not just the individual, what do they come from? What do they learned about themselves? What are the messages that they give themselves that they've gotten from others, particularly their families? So I found it very fascinating. And yes, I think most of us who are entering the field have something that we're wanting to know more about, learn more about, understand more. Because I do believe with kind of awareness and understanding, we have opportunity for choice that we may not have had if we weren't looking at it in a way that would help us identify it. Okay, this is a pattern that's not working for me. This is a relationship and our communication is not working for me. So once we kind of get that idea, we have a choice to do something different. So that's what I love about it. So what were the stories in your family that have had a big effect on you? Oh my, the stories in my family. Well, I think probably the story that's had such an impact on all my father's parents' grandchildren, there were six of us, and the story that was kind of handed down was that they owned a small grocery store in central Indiana, and it was a mom and pop thing back in the early part of last century. 
up until the mid part of last century. And during the Great Depression and the World Wars, people would come in and get food from them and they couldn't pay. And my grandparents would say, well, put it on the bill. Don't worry about it. And so I wasn't around during that time. But when I became a teenager, I would run into people downtown at the bank or, you know, wherever. And they would say, oh, are you related to Joe Carney? And I say, yes, he's my father, my grandfather. And they say, oh, does he own the Carney grocery store? Yes. Oh, if I hadn't been for them, our family couldn't have eaten during this period of time or that period of time. And when it came time to pay our bill, oftentimes they told us they forgave our bill. So I think what was important about that story is all six of the grandchildren really are about doing service in the world. And I think it's one of the reasons as a marriage and family therapist, I love the field, but I work at a nonprofit community mental health center in Atlanta, Georgia. We were established in 1971 as one of the first family therapy centers in the country. And I was so excited to get to be there because I believe, you know, that everybody who wants therapy and wants good therapy, that there can be a place for them, a place for them to come and to feel safe and to get the help that they want and need. So I think it's impacted me greatly in terms of my choices. And this shop actually was closed by the time you were born. So even though the shop actually wasn't there, it was still having this impact. And the story actually makes me quite tearful. I'm not quite certain why it makes me tearful, whether it's you or just somehow that because it's actually something emotional for you that I've picked up, or whether this sort of sense of how much our families impact on us and how strong these stories are, even if we never actually saw the shop, I'm not quite certain what it is, but it feels incredibly powerful. What, what do you think it is? Well, I'm not sure. I do believe the last chapter in my book is how powerful are stories, myths, and rituals in our families, because I do believe they carry a great deal of power and meaning to us, and that they get passed down through the generations. This story was, you know, really kind of two generations back for me, included my father, of course, because he worked in the grocery store as a young man. But I do think we carry that. We carry the meaning of it. And I think families also have mottos that they live by. For us, this was a matter of helping others and integrity. And so that's the story. That's the the, kind of the message that's been passed down with that story. And we had other mottos in my family that I realized, okay, I didn't realize I was impacted by that. I certainly have been impacted by it. One of my favorites is my mother's. Today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. Mm. That plaque on the wall in the kitchen where I sat in our table, round table where five of us sat, I looked at it. It was right there in my view for years. And I didn't realize how grateful I am to have gotten that message so early on about kind of like, well, you know, you worried about it. That was kind of a waste of energy. So if you're going for family therapy, how is that different from individual therapy or couple therapy? I do couple therapy and I do individual therapy as well, but I've never done family therapy. What's it like? Well, in some ways, I mean, I think it's more similar to couple therapy. Well, although I do systems therapy with my individuals. I do too. We ought to explain what systems theory is. Yes. Well, family systems therapy is looking at not only each individual in the family, 
but how they are all impacting one another. Looking at what may be the problem or often the person that's considered to be the identified patient that when they come in to see me and it's say a family of five and there's one person who's been identified as the patient or as the person with the problem, then I certainly want to look at what's going on with that individual. But I want to know how are they impacting others, but how have they been impacted and are they being impacted now in how the family relates to one another? I think that's a really interesting idea, the identified patient, because I think a lot of people can actually identify with that idea. So in my family, for example, I was the problem because I was the sensitive one. And I think, you know, there are lots of people who have got a label like being the sensitive one. Sometimes they're positive ones, like the the pretty one or the intelligent one, but often it can be the problem one. And it's very easy if you've been identified as the patient to think you really are the patient. So how do you actually get the family to look at it differently? Well, I take a pretty thorough history and I like to get at least three generations because I want to look at, okay, what might be patterns that have influenced this current situation? Often there is, and it's very obvious to me often in the first couple of sessions, because I'm taking the family history. So if it's a family with two parents, I'm going to be taking the history of each parent and then kind of wanting to know a timeline of what's been happening. And I'm going to reframe the problem for the family in a way that takes this identified patient off the hot seat, that I'm going to frame the problem in terms of it being a systemic issue and that all people are impacted. And how then can we work together as a system to help the person or to help the situation or the problem at hand? So if, uh, I mean, this would never have happened because this is not my parents, but let's imagine that my family came in and I was identified as the sensitive one. How would you reframe that idea? Well, they wouldn't probably just bring you in because you're the sensitive one. There would be something that they would identify that you're experiencing or you're causing or whatever because you're the sensitive one. So it would be then important that perhaps if they haven't identified You know, it's not that whatever it is you're doing because you're sensitive, if they haven't labeled that. Now, they may be labeling you as the sensitive one, and that's a bad thing. So I'd want to frame that. You know, I want to be listening as to, okay, how is that also a good thing? So how do you identify the rules in a family? Because the rules in a family are really important, but often they're not actually spoken about. Yes, and that takes some time. Because there's rules about different things. There can be rules about, okay, what's your role because of your birth order? What's your role because you're male or female? What are the rules around communication? You know, the old, I don't think this is as common as it was when I was a child, but, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. I got that one as well. Okay. So that's a rule. Sometimes they're kind of unspoken. But if you can get some of those unspoken rules said out loud, then it is a way to discuss them. How is that working? And what impact is that having on the child? You know, I think of one family where one of the rules was the oldest male child had to be a hero. He was cast in that role. Another child was cast as peacemaker. Another child was cast as, you know, the clown. And 
problems were coming up because they got kind of stuck in these roles. So it'd be like, okay, can we identify them, have awareness of them, understand and maybe how they came to being that may not be as important as how they're functioning in the current time. And what could we do if someone is experiencing some anguish because of this? What can we do to change that? I'm sitting here thinking of your family in front of you. I've got a picture of five people in front of you. And I'm sort of wondering who's in charge in this family? Is that a question that you ask yourself? Oh, that's one of the most, the first question I want to ask, because I think the structure of the family is extremely important. If this is a family with children, then there has to be an executive functioning subsystem. And that is usually a parent or parents. And it's very important that that parent is the one who is taking responsibility for the security of the child, the safety and security of the child. And so in my family, it was very clearly my parents were the executive functioning subsystem. I think my father was probably a little more dominant, although my mother was the caretaker of the children as a homemaker. My father was out in the world working, as was often common back in those days in a two-parent family. I think, you know, but they were, it was very clearly, they made the decisions, they made sure that we were safe and secure, that we had what we needed, but we also had a family meeting once a month, mm. of which I decided I was president, and <laughs> of the old and parents thought that was fine, and I made up little cards that everyone carried. My father even carried one in his wallet, that this was our family club, and we met once a month to discuss things and to discuss problems that we were having or things that we didn't like or things that were upsetting us or decisions we might want to make about a trip, a family vacation. Even though the parents made the ultimate decision, they would at least listen to our preferences. And so I thought that was a very lovely way to get to experience, I think, a family that had some rules and roles Certainly, we all do, every family does, but that we also had a voice. It was a very democratic family. So what happens if one of the children's in charge? Do you get families like that? Oh, yes. They can be in charge in different ways. I mean, I think an obvious one that most people would recognize would be that if you're particularly maybe an older child in a family where there's an alcoholic parent or in a single parent family with alcoholic parent, then oftentimes the child is in charge. And that can be a great burden for the child, particularly depending on how old they might be at the time. I think that children are often in charge with, even when their parents think they're in charge, that they're letting the child, you know, kind of like, okay, they have to do, there was this whole thing when I was having children that was about, okay, we want, it's a time where we need to let the children, you know, do whatever they want to do. There was a great book out of England called Summerhill. Oh, yes. It was a school, wasn't it? Yes. And the idea was you let children grow and learn what they're interested in at their own pace. I love the idea. But I think it went to the extreme. And the school descended into anarchy, didn't it? (laughs) You know, the children like, okay, I'm going to choose my own bedtime. You have to fix a separate meal for me. All this kind of stuff that parents are allowing the child to have way more power in the family than the child really is 
helps them to feel secure. They don't feel secure if they have that power. When we're children, we all want to know there's someone else who's looking out for us, who's providing that for us. So even though at the time we act like we want it, somewhere inside of us, we know that we're losing. We're missing out. So another thing that's really important in families is boundaries. And you identified several different kinds of boundaries. So you have diffuse boundaries, which are enmeshed boundaries. Tell me about those. Well, I think that's where you have the subsystems in the family, the parent, the child subsystem. Of course, you have each individual. And if it's so diffuse that a person isn't entitled to have their own space and to set a limit or a boundary, then it can be very devastating when you go all the way to something like, you know, sexual abuse within the family, which is, of course, a terrible thing. It also be where the, let's say a mother, single mother is dating and she gives all her teenage daughter all the details. So that's a diffuse boundary. And generally when there's a diffuse boundary, someone is suffering. They may not be identifying it as that, but it's a more internal experience that something is not right and that it impacts them in a way that is negative. Because on one level, for to be your mother's counsellor is a position of strength and it feels quite good, but you're being parentified well well before the fact you're actually psychologically ready to be a parent and you don't really want to be parenting your parents you know obviously if they're 95 that's a different matter but you know generally that's not where you want to be so we come to the next kind of boundary and these are rigid boundaries so tell me about rigid boundaries rigid boundaries is when you really don't have access so the child doesn't feel they can go to the parent and talk to the parent, that the parent has usually set this boundary, I'm not interested, don't come to me. The rigid boundaries can be between the subsystems of parents' children. It could be between siblings, that there's the girls in the family exclude the boy. There's a rigid boundary. So they can show up in different ways. And generally, if there's a really, the rigid boundary can be between the subsystems, but the rigid boundary can also be around the family. A diffuse family, which you're talking about a minute ago, would mean people might be coming and going in and out of the house all the time. No one ever knows who's going to show up. In the rigid family, it'd be like their contact with the outside world may be very limited. And often when I come across working with, they're very reluctant often to come to therapy, but sometimes when they come because a child has been in so much trouble at school or they had gotten trouble with the court, they've been ordered to come to therapy and I discover it's a very rigid boundary, then more than likely there's something going on in the family that the family does not want the outside world to know about. And what sort of things are those? Well, it could be alcoholism. It could be some kind of domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse. Those would be the three things I think of. Are they sometimes inherited secrets rather than the ones that actually belong in the family and what's happening now? I absolutely think that can happen. I think that could be something that they, one of the parents experienced in their childhood and out of that experience, then that's what they've created in their own families. And sometimes we certainly hear that when I'm taking the family history. And then the third kind of boundaries are clear boundaries. So tell me about clear boundaries. 
Yes, the clear boundaries mean that there's an opening between the subsystems. They're opening between the individuals and the family. There's an opening to the outside world, but there's also a boundary. It's not just loosey-goosey where, you know, anybody can come and go and anybody might be sleeping on the couch when you wake up in the morning. It's So you have a clear sense of, I think, safety, really, and security, but that they're available to one another, both emotionally as well as in, physically, and then can can you help me? I need to talk. I want to talk about this. There's more dialogue. So, how do you help families set better boundaries? Then, well, first of all, by helping them realize that whatever boundaries they, if it's you know diffuse, how that is affecting them, and do they want to have a different experience? People have to want to have it before it's going to happen. And if they do, and they think that could be beneficial, sometimes it's your little psychoed that you're explaining to them about that. If they do, then I want to help them look at, okay, this would be something for you to experiment with. And then we'll see how we can tweak that along the way. If it's a very rigid boundary, then of course we want to explore that. If there's something going on that is dangerous to one of the people in the family, then there may be times where we have to set the family up so that there's safety. And then we can hopefully continue working together as a family to create better boundaries so that everyone can feel that they are safe and secure. So I sometimes get people to actually imagine the boundaries and what are they made of? Are they made of silk? Are they made of corrugated iron or bricks, you know, how high up do they go? Can they come up and down? And actually beginning to visualize boundaries and what they're made of and how much of you they cover can be quite a good way in to start thinking about them in a different way. What do you think of that? Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that it's a lovely way to think about it. And oftentimes for me, when I'm doing something like that, I have people set that boundary about two feet to two and a half feet outside of their physical being. Mm. I don't know why. I just have found that to be really helpful. So it's rather than on your skin, Mm -hmm. because we all have our own personal space. So it's like, okay, our own personal space is about, depending on the individual, can be out, you know, a little bit. And, you know, if you speak kind of metaphysically, if our aura If we're looking at auras, some people believe that that extends out about that far. So that's where I'm going to put the boundary. So as well as what are the stories, we have roles in the family. And I'm going to take you through the roles that you go through in the family, because I think these are really interesting for people to think, which of these roles roles did I take on? So the placator, what's the job of the placator? Well, it's the same as the kind of the peacemaker that you're placating, you know, that you're trying to make people not upset. So if someone's upset, you're trying to do something to kind of calm the scene down and that you might do something then to try to bring some peace to the family. Usually there's someone in the family that's carrying that role, not always, but it is a pretty common role to take on. And when I see placators in my counselling room, often they're so focused on what other people want, they haven't got the first idea what they want themselves. And they also tend to be carrying a huge amount of resentment because to placate, you do what other people want. And there's only so long you can do that for. 
Right. So it, having people look at that is which, which what I'm sure what you do. You have them become aware that they are not honoring themselves, that they tend to be more concerned of the other and the other's feelings, and they're not really taking a look at or experiencing and honoring their own thoughts, feelings, wants, and needs. The next one, this is one I see a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, and that's the blamer. So tell me about the blamer. Well, you know, the person is always having to make it someone else's fault. So it doesn't matter what it is, it's because someone else did something wrong, that they don't take responsibility. And this will show up certainly when families come in or couples couples <laughs> and individuals. I'm sure with couples, you know, there can be someone come in. It's always the other person's fault. They're never looking at themselves, what part they play, how they helped create what is happening in the relationship. And so it's helping them realize the impact that that, if they're willing to come to therapy, to own some responsibility and the impact that they're having on others and how in some ways they're cheating themselves. Cheating themselves? Yeah, I think so. Because if you're so busy, then making the excuses and finding someone else at fault, you're missing something in you and being in contact with that. That could be very valuable. Because I'm thinking of various couples I've had over the years where there's not one blamer, but there's two. You know, I, I blame you and then you blame me back. And even if you manage to pin something on me, well, I say, well, that's nothing. You, could, you know, if you think I've got short hair, you've got a mismatching pair of socks on sort of kind of thing. And on and on we go. And... They are incredibly difficult to break through because, you know, you can only use the word I, you can't use the word you. And they say, this is all very well and good, but really it is his fault or really it is her fault. Right. Yes. Those, I think it would be very difficult, very difficult couples to work with. You know, I borrow the line from wherever it came. I don't remember. You know, it's like, okay, we, how important it is. Is it more important for you to be right than happy? I mean, what I often think is, why is it so important to be right? You know, what happened in your family to the people who were in the wrong? And, you know, that's often horrible things. Yes. And it's what meaning did you give to that? Meaning if you're not right, then you're not good enough. So you have to find, okay, what is the meaning? If it's so important for you to be right, what is the meaning that if you were wrong, what would that mean? And to really begin to look at that, and it almost always goes back to the messages we give ourselves about ourselves. So the next of these roles is super responsible. Yes. And a lot of these, you know, have come from a lot of different sources over the years, different people writing about it. Virginia Satir wrote a lot about the roles that people take in the family. And so I think I've learned a lot from her. But the super responsible person is the one who, again, is not looking at their own wants and needs, but so focused on everything being right or taken care of in the family that they get lost. They're so focused on this has to be this way, this has to be that way, this person needs this, that person needs this, that they just get lost. And so then I think the role of the therapist is to help them come back to themselves. That's interesting. I've never thought of those people as lost. It feels like it opens up quite a lot. How do you help them find themselves? Well, by helping them become 
aware of their thoughts, feelings, wants, and needs because all they're thinking about is getting this job done or the other. So, okay, what are your feelings? And oftentimes they can't identify their feelings. They're not paying any attention to them. So then you have to work with them. What is feeling and how do you identify it? And, and then, okay. And so what, you know, let's work with that. What do you think is your want around that or your need around that? And this is new territory for some people. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think we've almost covered this one already, but this is the person who's always right. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think in some ways we have been. And again, I think that goes back to what is the fear of not being right? Then we have congruent. Tell me about congruent. Well, I think the congruent is that your your actions match your internal world. Your behavior, your thoughts and feelings and behavior line up. So this is, we say we're not angry and our body language says we're not angry rather than I'm not angry. Exactly. Exactly. It's not lining up. So it's when it lines up that our thinking, our feelings, and our actions and behavior line up. And then we've got irrelevant. Yes. Well, I think that is, that's really a sad place to be, to feel that you're not seen, you're not heard, you don't matter. If something happened, you disappeared, it wouldn't matter that much. It's a very sad place to be. So it's working with them, usually on self-esteem and self-worth. And I'm suddenly thinking of children who have got siblings that died, and they often feel irrelevant, that the sibling that died is the one that was important, and they're just a placekeeper, so to speak. That happens quite often, really. And part of that is that a parent is so caught up in the grieving, understandably so, but that they may, because they're in the throes of grief, not be also aware that the sibling of the child who died, that 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 person is grieving and also needs them. And so when I do family work with this, it's to really help them understand that their living child needs them. And often the parents may seemingly be doing a really good job of paying attention, but the child takes that on. That that person was the one, if they had to have, they'd probably rather it been me than the other sibling who died. They take that on. And so it's having dialogue about that, healing dialogue around it. And that, you know, is kind of unique to each family in terms of how they do that and experience that. But I think it's, it is something that happens more than I wish I had seen in my career. And it's very sad. So I love the idea in your book that you can design a family ritual to help honor a problem or to heal something. I love rituals, and I'm just sort of thinking how we could have a ritual that's going to heal a family. So sort of help us think about something that we could practically do for our own families. Well, again, it kind of depends on what they're coming in about. Are they coming in because they've lost someone? how they've handled that together. Because I think that happens a lot of times in families where there may be some public ritual, but they haven't done anything with the family to help them experience this together in a way that can become a healing experience. And it's so different 
depending on the families, that their values, their religious beliefs. So it can be a very different thing depending, it has to be very individualized for the family. So there's the issue around creating rituals around loss and grief that that can be creating a ritual. I'm thinking of one of my colleagues and when his oldest daughter started her menstrual period, that the family had a very special ritual around that. Oh, tell us about that. How, how did the ritual work? It was for them, and I wasn't there present, but he shared a lot of that with me. It's been a couple decades ago. But I think what they ended up doing was honoring, they wanted to acknowledge it as a special transition in a woman's life, and that it was something special. And I remember they had something to do with them gathering under a tree. Uh, I think they had poems that they had written to her, and my friend plays the guitar and sang, so he probably did a little song for his daughter, and they had a little celebration. They had food, but it was a honoring of the passage into a different phase in her stage of development, but I thought it was lovely. And I suppose you could do something like that for a child leaving home and going off to university as well. Something a little bit more creative than all going out for dinner together. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I wonder what that could be. Let's put our thinking caps on. Well, one that I think of is, in addition perhaps to going to dinner, would be that each person give the, in the family, give the person who's going off, maybe for the first time, a small thing that that person could have with them in their pocket or set on their shelf, something small that is meaningful. Um, it could be one thing. It could be that they purchase a particular candle and that, you know, after dinner or whatever, they light the candle and each one of them puts into that flame a wish for the person leaving. And then the person, when they are away and light the candle, can remember the wishes they've received from the individual family members. I mean, that's just one that comes to mind. Mm, that sounds beautiful. And I was thinking of something that could sit on the on the mantelpiece. They don't have mantelpiece in student rooms, but they do have windowsills. So, you know, each person is giving a little something that's going to sit there and the family is together at that point. So they're taking the good wishes and the person with them. And maybe the child can give something to the parents that can be there in a, on the windowsill at home as well, of a, a symbol of the fact that they're still psychologically, spiritually, still part of the family. They're still there. I think you have to start being creative, but it has much more power than just going out for dinner and it becoming like the Last Supper sort of kind of thing. <laughs> Right. Well, in a moment, we're going to be looking at a letter. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Guess how long I've been helping couples have more fulfilling relationships? The answer shocked me. 39 years. Over this time, I've developed all sorts of interventions to help couples communicate better and make meaningful changes to protect and nurture their love. 
Some ideas I've used for a while and dropped, but at the core, there are a handful of must-haves that I use with all the couples I see face-to-face. Sadly, I can't work with everyone who wants my help, but I can share my best relationship tools. I've put them in a new course with worksheets and links to my most helpful podcasts. There are four hours of instructions to do at your pace together, with your partner or on your own. And it normally retails at £150. But to launch, I've dropped them to a special introductory price of £99.50. If you'd like to find out more, go to andrewgmarshall.com forward slash tools and get started on improving your relationship. There are many ways to get involved with The Meaningful Life. And if you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, you'll find details of how to do so. You can sign up for my newsletter as well. It comes out every two weeks. Um, I have an interesting article. The one that uh, is just recently sent out is all about money and how money means different things to different people. So um, that could be really interesting because families and how they deal with money is a huge topic. So also there, you can send in a letter. And this is the letter I've got to discuss with Elaine. We've been together for 43 years and are both in our mid-60s. In 2018, my husband met a young Asian lady and became infatuated. I was told she had opened a Pandora's box for him. He conducted his online affair in front of me and our son. It broke down and since then I've endured three more women, two online, one he lived with for four months. I have had a breakdown and both our adult children have been in therapy. We've now come to a place where we realise that time is very short, but he has not found what he's searching for yet. At the end of the year, he's leaving me and flying to an Asian country. There he will search on site and live with someone. He hopes he will find happiness and will then ask for a divorce and sell the family home. We've come to an arrangement that no big steps like divorce shall be taken within a two-year period. This will give him time to find out if he has met the one. If not, he'll return home, and if I've not moved on myself, we'll address our marriage, go to counselling, and try to come together again. I have accepted my shortcomings in the marriage. I paid him less attention when the children were born, my sex drive reduced, he felt pushed out and ignored. However, there are many traits and interests that we share, and I believe that if we address our issues, we can be strong again. Do you have any advice on how to stay sane over the next three years? I socialise, I do gym classes, I have good friends and a wonderful relationship with my children. I garden, cycle and love our cats. Yet each day is filled with unease and dread over what is coming and my anxiety is high and sometimes I verge on the brink of a panic attack. Do you believe that our marriage is solvable? All right. Well, I want to go to the last question first because I think only a marriage can be saved if both people want it saved. So can their marriage be saved? Yes, but it would be that the husband would want that as well as the writer of the letter. Because if one person doesn't want it, then I don't know that it's going to happen. How to stay sane during this experience? I really would hope that she's getting 
well, I'll tell you two things. That she's allowing herself to have her feelings, including hurt and anger, and that it might be helpful if she's not in therapy to find a therapist so that she doesn't feel she has to protect someone, that she can't say these things to her husband because it'll make him mad, or she doesn't want to share them with other friends or family members, and maybe that's appropriate not to, probably so. Please don't discuss this with your adult children. Even if they're adults, they don't really want to know the ins and outs of their parents' relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so get a therapist. Get a therapist that is in alignment with your values and that can support you. But it's a place where you can have your thoughts and feelings and really express them freely. I think that could be a way to be helpful, to stay sane, whatever the outcome is of the relation. Because I feel that both of them are asking the wrong question. I don't think the question is, do you believe our marriage is savable? I think is the question she needs to ask herself, or you need to ask yourself, is what do I need to learn from this situation? Because this situation has been around since 2018, which is like a million years, really, isn't it? Five years, that there is something you need to learn. What is it? And I think that that way, it turns this whole thing onto you rather than something outside. So you're trying to fix your marriage or you're trying to fix him, both of which are outside your power of control. But actually finding out what you can learn yourself about yourself. And I would like to hope that it isn't just about you as a wife. I think I want to have you as the whole person because I think that you have been looking at your marriage and your part in it. But I, I feel I want to broaden it out because you are very stuck here. And when I'm with people who are stuck, the only way out is through to quote the famous poem. And you need to go deeper. You know, what do you need to learn? What is actually trapping you here at this precise moment? There's something that wants to be heard. That's why the, you know, the anxiety is there. You know, anxiety is telling you something. Anxiety is there for a reason. I mean, he's not asking me this question, but I feel that he's asking himself the wrong question. He's asking himself, is there a woman somewhere in the world that will make me happy? And generally, the answer is inside ourselves and traveling halfway around the world and dating the most delicious young women. I don't know if you're going to find yourself. I think if you don't know where you're going and you hook up with somebody else, you tend to go where they want to go, not where you want to go. So, you know, if they're a young woman, they suddenly say, well, I want another child. And you suddenly find yourself as a parent in your mid-60s. Was that really what you wanted or were you just trying to make somebody else happy? And then in the hope that you're going to make yourself happy. So I think both of them are asking themselves the wrong questions, but he is not our concern. You are our concern and I'd like you to go deeper. I mean, nearly every single program that I do is about often about people at some kind of crossroads in their life and they're finding that they need a new direction. And it feels a little bit like you've put your life on hold or you're planning to put your life on hold for to see what somebody else is going to do. And I sort of want you to set off on your own journey about what is important to you. What do you need to learn? 
And I sort of almost want to see it like a pilgrimage almost, a pilgrimage to yourself. How do you start? I would say follow the breadcrumbs. You know, what are the things that interest you? What has got some energy behind it that you want to do? You know, even if it's only doing a pottery class, you know, something different that will get you moving in some kind of way forward in this adventure, because the future could be something very beautiful. We don't know what it is, but staying where you are doesn't seem to be the best place to be. Well, I think that is lovely response to her and absolutely agree with everything you say. And hopefully she'll take that advice. So we've more or less run out of time, unfortunately, but the conversation continues if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life when we're going to talk about family secrets, how to deal with them, to tell or not to tell. And if you want to hear that bonus material, I'll explain in a moment. But before I do that, Elaine, I have to ask you as my witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Connections. Connection to myself, my own feelings and thoughts and wants and needs, connections to other humans, and connections to nature. I love to garden. I love to have conversations with the birds around me. So it's, it's that connection that makes my life meaningful. That's interesting. I would have said exactly the same. You know, connection is so important. And often we tend to put other things in front of it, like happiness and money. I think that's a beautiful answer. Thank you very much for that. Now, if you want to hear us talk about family secrets and you to hear that bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify, or you can go to our website and find out how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way. Here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.